Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Appreciate your joining me. Have to do another shout out to all the Patreon subscribers. This is really helping me continue the podcast, and I really appreciate it. And I'm really happy to get questions and comments on there. Thank you very much for all the thank yous and the kind words, as well as any questions that you have. Patreon is not a perfect platform, but I am grateful for it because it's the best thing available that I know of right now to get some extra content out. And I do appreciate your patience with the limitations. Let's talk today about 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 16. So this finishes off this epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. As usual, jam-packed, lots of information here. Let's look at a few highlights. This is an obscure one that I wanted to share because I think it's just interesting that Joseph Smith commented on so many verses like this and that he gave such illuminating understanding. Super grateful for the prophet of the restoration, Joseph Smith. So let's look at this first chapter, chapter 8 in this section, and we're going to go to verse 5. Now, it's interesting that the question here is, should we be eating things offered into idols? And we've mentioned before that Paul has said this is not really okay. Now, it doesn't have a lot of meaning because idols are just nothing. You know, I mean, there's no real God. These are man-made ideas. So the food that's offered to them is not holy or sacred or in any way because these are just stone statues or ideas of men that bring about a lot of evil and depravity. Nevertheless, he makes a big speech about this in chapter 8. So let me read from the Doctrinal New Testament by Elder Bruce McConkie. The Corinthians had asked Paul for counsel about eating meat sacrificed by pagan people to their idols. He replies that in theory, it is completely immaterial whether the saints eat such meat or not because idols are not true gods. And there is actually no religious significance to the pseudo-sacrifices one way or the other. But, he reasons, in practice, it may not be wise to eat this meat since such a course might cause those who are weak in the faith to assume there was virtue and benefit in the sacrifices themselves and therefore to be led astray. Now, that's important. We have been counseled to avoid even the appearance of evil or mixed or confused messages that might come from our behaviors or actions or words. And we are going to talk a lot about that at the end of the podcast today. But let's go on. McConkie continues, And praise God for such bursts of inspiration in the midst of his relatively unimportant comments about some saints who had been partaking in pagan temples of food sacrificed to idols— Paul summarizes for his Corinthian brethren some of the great truths about the plurality of gods. So let's look at verse 5 of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Okay, but look at now what the prophet says. The prophet commenting on this passage said, Paul had no allusion to the heathen gods. I have it from God. 
and get over it if you can. <laughs> Boy, talk about wonderful plain spokenness that the prophet shared. I have a witness of the Holy Ghost and a testimony that Paul had no allusion. He was making no reference or allusion to the heathen gods in the text. The prophet also taught in explaining John's statement, which is from the book of Revelations, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. So that's the reference that he's talking about in something written by the apostle John in the book of Revelation, that there is a God above the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was the son of God, and John discovered that God, the father of Jesus Christ, had a father, you may suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? Whenever did a tree or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? And everything comes in this way. Paul says that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly. Hence, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that he, meaning the father, had a father also? And this is from Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Going on a little bit, indeed, this doctrine of plurality of gods is so comprehensive and glorious that it reaches out and embraces every exalted personage. Those who attain exaltation are gods. Go and read the vision in the Book of Covenants. Now, that would be section 76. All other sections in the DNC are referred to as revelations. There is one that is referred to as the vision, and that is section 76, the one of the three glories that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon received together. Anyway, the prophet is saying, go and read the vision. There is clearly illustrated glory upon glory, one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and the glory of the stars. And as one star differeth from another star in glory, even so do they of the telestial world differ in glory. I've talked about this. because so I think that we have this sort of, you know, monolithic view sometimes of the telestial kingdom, and we think it just involves heinous sin, which, of course, yes, the fruits of the wages of sin are death. So there is a kind of spiritual death in the celestial kingdom because it is not in the presence of God. Nevertheless, it's beautiful and peaceful and a great mercy because it's going to be a beautiful place and it will be more than, well, whatever we receive will be more than we deserve. Again, this is something I've talked about quite a bit, but what he is saying here is what I've referred to that you know, some people will be in a dim star, some people in a bright star, and all the different glories of stars in between. And I think that's important because sometimes we might minimize telestial behaviors because they don't seem to compete against some of the really atrocious and heinous acts that human beings can commit. And yes, there is a huge spectrum of telestial behavior. And that's really what this teaches us, that any rebellion against God is sin. And we need to repent of those things and not let our natural man reign in any area of our lives. That is a long-term process because as we become more sensitive to the Spirit, sometimes we realize, oh my goodness, I've been doing something else that's actually offensive to the Spirit, and I need to bring that behavior up to a higher level as well and repent and change in another arena. And we want that. We want that increased spiritual sensitivity to make us more and more aware of things that could offend the Spirit, so that we can ultimately qualify for the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost in our lives and the constant companionship that comes with that. Just to finish this comment from the Doctrine of the New Testament commentary, 
that Joseph, in teaching the prophet, was talking about the glory of the sun, the moon, the stars, and as one star differeth from another star in glory, even so do they of the telestial world differ in glory, and every man who reigns in celestial glory is a god to his dominions. They who obtain a glorious resurrection from the dead are exalted far above principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, and angels, and are expressly declared to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, all having eternal power. So, you know, we have been criticized as a church many times for believing that man can become God. But this is all one eternal round. And what Paul is referring to here, and that the prophet explained more fully, is that, of course, the intent of God is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of each of us if we will receive it. And as a son grows into a father, so that happens with those of us who receive what the father offers. And then we, in our turn, can offer it to other worlds. It's true that we have limited information of what that looks like, and that's fine. It's not necessary for now, but it is this glorious idea of this plurality of gods and that God himself was a son once as his son Jesus Christ was for this existence. Anyway, I think that's kind of lovely the way Bruce R. McConkie talks about this as a burst of inspiration in the midst of this relatively minor communication about this deal of eating food sacrificed to idols. He gives us this wonderful vision. Now, let's look ahead at verses 9, 11, and 12. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So he's warning against us, again, being confusing in our behavior and maybe weakening somebody else's faith. Verse 11, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So if you're taking some things casually, or you may know that this isn't important, but if you do it anyway, because it's not a real God that are these idols, then might you not weaken somebody else's faith who is not as mature in their faith? And verse 12, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ, This is a very important idea, and we will kind of wrap up the podcast today in a discussion about that. Lots of other gems here that we have limited time to discuss, but we will mention a few. Chapter 9, verse 22. I am made all things to all men. This is the second end of the second line in the scripture. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Now, what do I want to say about this? I want to say that we have to be careful because there are a lot of people that I work with as a counselor who try to be all things to all people or making themselves responsible for everybody else's happiness. And in doing so, they take too much responsibility for other people's choices. I've told many people over the years that you cannot protect another person from the exercise of that person's agency. We are all given this great gift of agency by God the Father. And we have choice about how we live our lives and what God we worship or do not. 
and how we worship that God in the way that he has declared or in our own way that we think is sufficient, even though it might be disobedience in the view of God. At any rate, everyone has their own choice. We cannot make those choices for them. It's interesting how easily we can slip into control. And this is a warning right out of section 121, that wonderful, wonderful section in the DNC and Liberty Jail section, where after the anguished cries of the Prophet Joseph Smith there in Liberty Jail, he gives us this marvelous revelation, jam-packed with amazing doctrine, including this sobering statement that we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. And I would add, women can make this problem too. Women can also participate in this error as soon as they get a little authority as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Or again, in the more familiar vernacular of the world, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. When we have a stewardship or some responsibility, it is easy for us to let that power go to our heads. And instead of being a servant and making sure that we are trying to do things in a way that is right before the Lord, we start to think our own ideas deserve to be <laughs> manifested. And even if that requires a little control or force, we don't too often shy away from that until we know better. But let's know better, brothers and sisters. So coming back to the original point, we are not responsible for everybody else's behavior. We are responsible for our behavior. That's all we can control anyway. So this isn't about exerting dominance or control or power over other people. Can we teach and invite and persuade? Yes, if we're willing to take the time and use the components of persuasion, gentleness, meekness, kindness, love unfeigned, all of those other beautiful words, also from section 121. Nevertheless, the idea, again, is that Paul is making a different kind of statement. He's not saying he's a people pleaser. He's not saying he holds himself responsible for everybody's choices and that you know he just has to keep everybody happy or twist himself into a pretzel in order to please people, which so many people do in this life. And it really is incredibly unhealthy. So what does he say? Paul here says he has made himself all things to all men in an effort to get them to accept the gospel message. So these are the words of Bruce R. McConkie again from the Doctrinal New Testament Commentary. That is, he adapted himself to the conditions and circumstances of all classes of people as a means of getting them to pay attention to his teachings and testimony. And then, lest any suppose this included the acceptance of their false doctrines or practices or that in any way involved a compromise between the gospel and false systems of worship, he hastened to add that he and all men must obey the gospel law to be saved. That's really good, meaning that Yes, he spoke to them on their level. We had a great example of that in Acts, the book of Acts, when Paul spoke to the Greeks. And there in Athens on Mars Hill, he used that reference to the altar to the unknown God in order to start there and explain to them who that God was that they did not know, who was God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, this is great counsel, certainly 
missionaries are asked to do this, to go all over the world and all over the country, maybe their home country, maybe other parts of the world, where they need to adapt to all classes of people, that they need not to be different, so different that they seem unable to connect with. Now, yes, we're different in our standards, and if we are living the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are differences. Nevertheless, in the way we approach them, there should never be superiority or you know, that sort of condescension that sometimes people have around others who live differently in a different style or different traditions. And I think this is an important idea. I think that sometimes even amongst us, we have been criticized because, as has been said, we're really good at fellowshipping those who are exactly like us. But I hear too often about people who, even though there might not be visible differences or obvious differences of culture or whatever, you know, maybe somebody has a son or a daughter who has chosen a different lifestyle of any kind or gotten into drugs or other behaviors that have made them seem, you know, different and how they feel so often unaccepted or even maybe rejected by the people of their neighborhood or ward. And we have to be really mindful of this, that we reach out to people who are different. We adapt to those differences in a positive way, not denying the gospel or turning away from any of the commandments, but in love and charity that we invite people and we make it as easy as we can for people to feel our love and to feel our concern. Chapter 10, there's this familiar idea, but let's clarify it a little bit with the help of the Book of Mormon. Chapter 10, verse 13, there hath no temptation taketh you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Well, let's look at the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 13, verse 28, in order to get a little bit more clarification about that idea. Because many people have quoted this and said, yes, God won't tempt us above that which we're able to bear. And yet, why do so many people fall when they are being tempted? And I think that this is a more complete idea, as we often see explained more clearly in the Book of Mormon. This is right after the verse in Alma 13 that says, I would that you would cast off your sins and not procrastinate the day of your repentance, but that ye would humble yourselves before the Lord and call on his holy name and watch and pray continually that ye may not be tempted above that which ye can bear. Now that's a very important clarification. If we don't watch and pray continually, we can be tempted beyond what we can withstand. So let's not be superstitious about that and think it's God's fault if we cave into temptation. We need to watch and pray continually. We need to seek the Spirit. We need to seek to live in a way where the Spirit can be with us so that we are more resistant, sin-resistant, high-yield, low-maintenance, sin-resistant saints. That's what we should be working for. I'm going to mention briefly here something that I will give some extra content for on Patreon. This is chapter 11, where Paul talks about 
men and women and husbands and wives. And this is an interesting, interesting section as other sections of Paul's writings that have often been used to try to paint Paul as a misogynist or somebody who condemned marriage and condemned women in some ways or thought less of women. And that is never true of a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he does say here, jumping ahead to verse 11 of chapter 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. But I want to talk more about this and also about verse 3, where the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. I think that bears a little more exploration. And I was having a good conversation with my husband, Chris, about that. When I was thinking about this podcast, and I'd like to share some of that, but if you are interested in that, please go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory. And there will be some extra content there soon. I did put a note on Patreon that because of our house flood in the basement, there may be some delay in my getting to some of that extra content, but I am keeping track and I will get to it as soon as I can. So I appreciate your patience as I try to manage my time a little bit here where there are some additional demands in some of the work we're doing after the flood with help from professionals, I'm happy to say, and we've had some really sweet people bring over meals so that we didn't have to worry about that for a little while. I'm very grateful to people who are so thoughtful and generous to think of us when everybody has their own challenges, right? Yet, as I've said so many times before, the real tragedies of life are not the things which we suffer. And all things considered, our suffering is very minimal because it's only stuff it's only going to take money to repair it. So we're grateful for the minimal nature of this trial, although it'll take us a while to get it back into functional space. Whatever our sufferings are, whatever our troubles and trials and difficulties in life are, and some of them are great, and some of them last a very long time and are heart-wrenching, remember We are here to learn from all those things. They are designed to give us experience. And our Heavenly Father will help us understand that if we seek the meaning of that trial. If we seek to understand how can this help us become more like our Savior Jesus Christ? How can this help us to stretch our faith and develop greater patience and have greater compassion? And sometimes there are other idiosyncratic lessons to be learned also in times of trial. Thank you for all the patience and kind thoughts. Now, um, in chapter 12, we're going to read about spiritual gifts, and I'm not going to spend time on this. It's pretty self-evident what the Lord is talking about here. And there are many places in Scripture, as you know, the DNC, as well as the Book of Mormon, where it talks about spiritual gifts. And it's wonderful to know that these are things that are always attendant in Christ's church where the gifts are, that is Christ's church. And where Christ's church is, there will always be these spiritual gifts to those who are willing to receive it and live in such a way that they can be manifested. And of course, we all have different ones. And it talks about how we are all part of one body and we can't say to the hand, we have no need of thee. This is verse 21 of chapter 12. Or under the foot, I have no need of thee. We all 
have our different gifts. We are unique in our strengths and weaknesses. And God has designed it in such a way that we can all work together to bring this manifestation of gifts into the ward, into the neighborhood, into our families as a blessing. And I love this because in verse 31, covet earnestly the best gifts. Now that's the only place you're going to see that it's okay to covet. And it's because you're not going to take anything away from anybody else. This is not a scarce commodity where if you desire a certain gift that somebody else has, that that person loses the gift in order for you to have it. So we're not talking about stealing a scarce commodity. We're talking about sharing in the enjoyment and manifestation of the Spirit of God in our lives and our families and in our wards and neighborhoods if we seek it and covet the best gifts. I love that. Chapter 13 is going to talk a lot about charity. And I love this verse. It's very familiar language. You know, it's used in a lot of secular marriage ceremonies or when people want to write their own vows for a marriage outside the temple or something. And not that we can't use these beautiful words ourselves if we want to give them to our spouses or people that we love. But anyway, I love this. Charity severeth long. We're in chapter 13, verse 4. And is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. And you'll hear this sometimes from other translations with just changing the word charity to love. And it has great relevance, of course, in either translation. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. There's a big one. I think that that's that is a sign of love and charity. The true and pure love of Christ is that we are not easily offended. We are not easily provoked. And think of no evil. I'm not going to read the rest of this, but it is so beautiful. And of course, at the end, verse 13, last verse of chapter 13, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, I will say that charity, in my studies, it seems to me that charity is the capstone virtue here. Remember, I quote this often, Marvin J. Ashton from a speech of April 1992 called The Tongue Can Be a Sharp Sword, made this wonderful statement where he said, the best and clearest indicator that we are progressing spiritually and coming to Christ is the way we treat other people. I love that statement for lots of reasons, but here again is an indication that that is the fruit of faith and hope in Jesus Christ is that if we really are living a faithful life and we have hope in the Savior, we develop charity. And it is not just a development, although, yes, part of it is that we should practice being patient and kind and caring and we should serve one another. Nevertheless, there is a part of charity that is an endowment that comes from the powers of heaven that when we prepare ourselves and seek this gift, that the Lord can give us an extra measure of his love, and we start to feel the way he does toward our fellow travelers on this planet, even towards our spouses, even towards our children, where there is natural love often or developed love, but we can have an extra level of God-like love, of Christ-like love that comes when we Continue diligently on this covenant path. So don't think that you have to like clench your teeth and grit your teeth and uh, until 
you love somebody. Like, I'm going to love this person if it kills me. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work. But if we go to the Lord and ask him to help us soften our hearts. And I will add, because, of course, I'm working on this book very slowly with all the things that have gotten in the way, on boundaries, that there are appropriate boundaries that allow us to actually have greater love for other people because we develop this non-victim Christian path. And we know how to keep ourselves safe, even from people who are not behaving in safe ways. And sometimes they are behaving in ways that are very hurtful to us or to people that we love. So if we learn how to be non-victim Christians, we can prevent ourselves from falling into that trap of real resentment and deep resentment that can always be a sign of having a poor boundary. All right, there's a little preview moment. Before we leave chapter 13, I need to mention a couple of other statements of Paul that are beautiful. His language always touches me in its beauty. And that I really use quite a bit in the work I do with people. Verse 12, I'm going to do these last two in reverse order. Verse 12 You've heard this phrase before. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. That's quite a beautiful and illuminating phrase that now we see through a glass darkly. I think that describes so well (laughs) the limited view of this life. We cannot see what God sees. He sees all things, and all things are present unto him. And this, if we work it right, can help us stretch our faith and relinquish this very human, admittedly very human need to want to see into the future. We want to know how things will be. And he tells us the important elements of the future. Nevertheless, we don't know all the details of how everything will unfurl in our own lives or in the plan. And the Lord asks us to believe because he does see and all things are in his hands and all things are promised to them that believe even the unrighteous will be attended to with mercy after justice is fulfilled because it cannot be denied. Beautiful language. I've said this before. We really resist this idea that we can't see clearly Sometimes we want to walk right up to that veil and we want to squint and, you know, peer as closely as we can into the dark and try to see what is still hidden from our view. But there is a purpose for this. There's a purpose. And that purpose is that we gain greater faith and trust in our Heavenly Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we relinquish this. I'll quote again something I quote often words from that beautiful Latter-day Saint hymn, although written by a Catholic cardinal, actually, John Henry Newman, Lead Kindly Light. Near the partway through the first verse and then into the second verse, I think these words are so relevant and beautiful. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. Now, there's a real relinquishing of of our vision there, where the author, John Henry Cardinal Newman, was wanting to see himself the future. And in fact, he wrote these words when he was going through a crisis of faith, I understand. 
But now he is giving this to the Lord. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. And then at the beginning of the next verse, it says, it continues this thought. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I loved to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. Love those words. I have felt those words in my own life, as I think all of us do from time to time. When we walk up to that veil and we squint and we really want to see. But God has drawn the veil for a purpose, and it is to grow our trust. There is a kind of faith, as we have said, that can only grow in the dark. And if we are trying to fight against the dark, we miss out. We need to trust and stretch that faith. This one I also quote very often. It's the verse just before, verse 11 of chapter 13. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Brothers and sisters, I quote that a lot. Because so many of our hang-ups come from our developing years, the years of our childhood. It has been suggested that it can take 60 years to get over the first 18. (laughs) I don't think it has to take a full 60 years, but, you know, maybe there are parts that still have to be worked on well into our 60s and 70s if we're around. At any rate, I talk to a lot of people about trying to understand the differences between the conclusions we make when we are children when we have such limited information, such limited cognitive ability, even in the early years, but even as that cognitive development happens, we still don't have the capacity or the adult maturity to deal with a lot of hard things. And yet children make conclusions about their lives based on their limited information and experience. And sometimes it does take a long time into adulthood to redo those false conclusions, those mistaken ideas or summaries we've made in our effort to make sense of our world and our place in it as we begin in this life. So I just love that language. The part I usually quote, I sort of skip a little bit, but I say, when I was a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That so clearly to me explains our potential as adults to gain greater understanding, to come closer to the Lord, to receive Christ as our Savior, and to be healed from the many things that go wrong in this life. And they are intended that way. We can do it. We can do it, brothers and sisters. Chapter 14, just a reminder here to check the footnotes. I cannot say that I always have time or take the time to go through every footnote in my scheduled podcast studies. Nevertheless, I always scan and look for the letters JST. And sometimes I have other chances to scan the footnotes, so I won't say I never look at them. I will say, however, I always look for JST in the footnotes because there are errors that Joseph Smith corrected that are really to our advantage. Look at this. Chapter 14, verse 34. Let's turn to that. Let's see. Right here in verse 34, yes. Let your woman keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. 
And that idea is repeated somewhere. But at any rate, look at what Joseph Smith did. In the footnote, JST, for that verse, he says, instead of the word speak, it really should be rule. That it is not permitted for women to rule in the church. Because we do believe that men are given the priesthood for that purpose, that they are given a priesthood responsibility to rule or lead in the church in various capacities. That is not saying women should not speak. Anyway, pretty big clarification there. Let's make sure we remind ourselves to check on those JSD corrections. And remember that not every error in the Bible is corrected or was corrected by Joseph Smith, but a lot of them are, and not all of them are in the footnotes. There are the longer ones at the back of the Bible, in the Latter-day Saint editions of the Bible, and also there is a whole book that you can buy that used to be called The Inspired Version, but I love that they're included here in a way that's very accessible. Chapter 15, another beautiful, beautiful verse in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That speaks to me also, and it's another one that I quote often. Paul's language is beautiful and insightful. That it is not about justice in this world. It's about justice when Christ comes and in the final judgment. And throughout the millennium, there will be a lot of work being done to heal wounds and to change injustice to justice. Let us believe that. Brothers and sisters, life is really hard. I do have a profession where I hear sad stories every day. And they touch me, and I feel tenderness and sorrow for people suffering, but I do not lose hope because it is not just in this life that I have hope in Christ. It's in the fulfillment of his promises. I have a whole fireside that I do sometimes about those promises and how justice and mercy will be the conclusion and the completion of this merciful plan, this generous plan that truly is a plan of happiness. And no matter how great our sufferings, brothers and sisters, it is not in this life only that we have hope in Christ. He will keep his promises. And then we have in this chapter a lot of the words in the libretto of Handel's Messiah, that monumental oratorio that I hope you have heard, or at least heard the most famous choruses and arias, because it's beautiful at any rate. Let's just look at some of these. We have verse 20, which, and to 22 actually, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. This is another poetic phrase that we get from Paul, that Christ is the first fruits of them that slept because he was the one who needed to break the power that death had over us as human beings coming to this earth in a fallen earth where when we die, our spirit would be permanently separated from our body, but because Christ broke the hold that death and the grave had upon us and reunited his own spirit with his body, now all of us will resurrect. 
And he, of course, is the first one to do that, to break that, that chain. And we call him the first fruits of them that slept. Beautiful, beautiful words here. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And that is a chorus that is sung by the entire choir in the Messiah. I remember the music because I have had a chance to sing along and to do some Messiah performances in Chicago. And I love the words of these choruses and arias. Verse 22, very familiar, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. It's beautiful. It's all beautiful. Anyway, a lot of this is in the Messiah. Verses 51, we're going to jump to 51 and 52, also in Corinthians 15. This is also in the Messiah. So beautiful. And I learned a new word. I thought I knew most of those musical terms, but for some reason, I guess I never noticed this one. It's a bass accompagnato, which is a word that means, it's like a recitative, like the focus is not so much on the melody, but rather this word would indicate that the words that are sung to an accompaniment are mostly said rather than sung. It emphasizes and imitates the rhythms and accents of spoken language rather than singing a melody. And that is certainly true of these verses that are beautiful. Behold, I shew you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, this is a reference to the millennium. Or anybody who was translated even prior to the millennium, like the city of Enoch. We shall not all sleep, meaning not everybody will taste of death. Some will be changed in the twinkling of the eye, and that's exactly what it says here. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And then these beautiful words, you know this aria, or at least the words to it from here in 1 Corinthians, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And it goes on, this corruption must put on incorruption, and mortal must put on immortality, and all this. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful words that culminate with death is swallowed up in victory, the last line of 54. 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, verse 57, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, so powerful. In fact, (laughs) I don't think it will be possible because I don't really know anybody who could do this, but I would love to have somebody sing and play that at my funeral. These words from Paul in 1 Corinthians, this trumpet shall sound. Aria, that's a bass aria, so incredibly beautiful. The words are powerful. I believe them with all my heart that Christ has broken the bands of death and we shall all be made alive through Christ. We're going to go back, though, for just a moment and not skip over two other little comments that he makes in this jam-packed chapter as well, verses 29, well, actually just verse 29, often quoted by missionaries, or many of us when we talk to people who don't understand baptism for the dead, and here Paul mentions it, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? 
That's a pretty powerful rhetorical question. In other words, baptisms for the dead were even done in these ancient times because they understood also that God loves all his people and is providing an opportunity through this kind of work for the dead that we do in our temples now to allow all spirits, those who did not have an opportunity to receive those ordinances here in this life, to allow all spirits the opportunity to receive these. God is good. And as you know, we were reading there earlier about how every man comes forth in his own order, Christ being the first fruits, and then those that are Christ is coming. We've talked about this before, that people will resurrect in first the morning of the first resurrection, which already began with Christ, the first fruits, and then those living before Christ who had died, they were qualified for the celestial glory, that those would have been resurrected at that time, and people saw them, saw some of those resurrected souls, both body and spirit, united again, even in the streets of Jerusalem. So that must have been quite something to see. And then another little important comment by Paul in verses 40 and 41, actually 42 as well. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. We have talked about this again and again. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. So, brothers and sisters, here we are again. You know that I have three realms on the brain. And that this is the reason that I use the title Choosing Glory. Because in our lives, day by day, we are choosing which glory we will inherit. Not everybody will be resurrected with a celestial body. Some will have a body terrestrial or a celestial body. And Paul explains this. So there is great truth in the Bible. Sometimes we're accused of not believing the Bible. That is not true. There are wonderful, beautiful truths in the Bible. There just were a lot of changes and some things that were unintentionally lost, other things that were intentionally changed or deleted. And we need more. So God has given us another testament of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. We're so blessed to have that. And then additional modern-day revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants and, of course, the ancient scrolls of the Pearl of Great Price that Joseph Smith was able to translate. Our cup runneth over, does it not? Let's just mention that Paul signs off in chapter 16 with love and encouragement to these people that he has sacrificed for. He tells them to stand fast in the faith and do all things with charity, and he mentions many of them by name. Now let's talk back to this idea of not being a stumbling block to others. And just to review, I want to read those verses again from chapter 8, right at the beginning of this set of chapters. Chapter 8, verse 9, take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours, meaning, you know, that it's not a big deal if you eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols, because it doesn't have any real meaning. But he's saying, take heed, lest this becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. And then in verse 11, through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Like, in other words, think about the worth of a soul. Think how important every soul is. And are you going to do something that could be a stumbling block for somebody else or make it harder for them to believe, especially if they are in a weaker stage of faith than you might be? And we will talk about that here in a moment. And then verse 12, 
But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Now that is a really important warning, I would say. And it made me look up a speech. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I found some really fun speeches actually, but I spent a long time trying to find a speech that I've mentioned to several people over the years, but did not have the title for or the year that it was given. I knew it was Elder Holland, but I did not know when he had given the speech. I had a pretty strong impression that it was shortly after we got to Utah. And it turns out that it was. So that part was right. And it did help to narrow my search somewhat, but I could not think of words to look up. So it wasn't one of those where I had a phrase or a statement that I could Google. So it was just a matter of like reviewing some of his conference address as well as many as I got to before I found it. And it was in 2003. We moved to Utah in late 1998. So it was about five years later. And it's called A Prayer for the Children, which is not a title that I was familiar with or knew before this search. Seriously, I've quoted this quite a few times to people, but not with exact words, and certainly not with a reference. So I'm actually delighted that this was an opportunity that I thought I didn't want to miss to actually find this speech. Let's get to that in a moment. Right now, another speech from Jeff Holland that I came across in my search is called A Teacher Come From God. And this is from April 1998. Let me read you a few selections from it. When crises come in our lives and they will, the philosophies of men interlaced with a few scriptures and poems just won't do. Are we really nurturing our youth and our new members in a way that will sustain them when the stresses of life appear? Now that's important. Are we nurturing our youth and our new members in a way that will sustain them when the stresses of life appear? Of course, there's a powerful upswing in spirituality and in love and joy when we discover new truths and we see this sweet naivete in our young people sometimes, our children and our youth, are we careful with it so that we don't destroy that and then when troubles come that they cannot stand? Or are we giving them a kind of theological Twinkie, spiritually empty calories, President John Taylor once called such teaching fried froth, F-R-O-T-H, fried froth. Wow. The kind of thing you could eat all day and yet finish feeling totally unsatisfied. During a severe winter several years ago, President Boyd K. Packer noted that a goodly number of deer had died of starvation while their stomachs were full of hay. In an honest effort to assist, agency had supplied the superficial when the substantial was what had been needed. Boy, that is such a sad story, right? But it's such a good parallel. They needed nutrition, but what they were given was not nutritious. It was, it was filling, but it did not give them what they needed. Regrettably, they had fed the deer, but they had not nourished them. What are we doing with our youth? What are we doing with our children? What are we doing with our our saints that are new to the kingdom? 
Going on, President Holland says, I love what President J. Reuben Clark said of our youth well over half a century ago. The same thing can be said of new members. They are hungry for the things of the Spirit. He said they are eager to learn the gospel and they want it straight, undiluted. You do not have to sneak up behind them and whisper religion in their ears. You can bring these truths out openly. Satan is certainly not subtle in his teachings. Why should we be? Whether we are instructing our children at home or standing before an audience in church, let us never make our faith difficult to detect. This is an important idea. And at first I thought this might be the speech that I was looking for, but there's something more coming. But this is the same idea. Are we making our faith difficult to detect? Anyway, remember, we are about to be teachers, or we are to be. Teachers come from God. Never sow seeds of doubt. Wow, can we emblazon that in our minds? Never sow seeds of doubt. That does not mean to whitewash. That does not mean to fluff things up with a lot of empty calories, so to speak. It does not mean we just go with faith-promoting rumors, as we have heard. You know, just everything has a happy ending or whatever, and we just keep it really fluffy and superficial. No, but we do not sow seeds of doubt in people who are weak, especially. Avoid self-serving performance and vanity. Prepare lessons well. Give scripturally based sermons. Teach the revealed doctrine. Bear heartfelt testimony. Each one of these we could talk about for a long time. Pray and practice and try to improve. In our administrative meetings, let us both instruct and edify, as the revelations say, that even in these, our teaching may ultimately be from on high. That's an important point, that our administrative meetings could also be more instructive and edifying as opposed to just busy work. The church will be the better for it, and so will you. For as Paul said to the Romans, therefore, thou which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? We all know this. We are the ones that learn the most when we prepare a lesson or give a speech. This is from a CES symposium on the Doctrine and Covenants in Church History, where then Elder Packer gave a speech. This is back in August of 1993 at BYU at that symposium called The Great Plan of Happiness. And it is a long speech, and there's a lot of really great stuff there if you're interested. Some time ago, Brother Barrett, who was involved in church education, but some time ago, Brother Barrett told Brother Tuttle and me that when he was a teenager in the southern part of the Salt Lake Valley, which was then a rural area, boy, that's a long time ago. That's where I live, Draper, southern part of the Salt Lake Valley. And it was a lot of farmland and... When we moved here, we could still see the remnants of that community, and it's sorry in a way that we're sorry in a way that we have lost that. But anyway, the young people in the ward were just a bunch of roustabouts, just like they are in your ward, just like they are in your class. That was about the time seminary was started. A worried bishop called a man to teach the youth. Brother Barrett described him as a convert from the old country who could not speak English very well. That was one reason not to call him. He was an old man, another reason not to call him. I mean, you know those classes, those classes where the youth are all rambunctious and they just chase one teacher out of the classroom after another sometimes <laughs> because people can't function very well. They don't know how to you know, deal with the challenge of, of those kids who are very maybe not respectful to begin with or willing to be taught. But anyway, 
The bishop called him. Then Brother Barrett told of the class period, and Brother Barrett was one of those rambunctious boys. So he said that he told of the class period. At first, they could not quite understand him. Brother Barrett concluded his description of this period in his life by saying, the teacher murdered the Queen's English every sentence, but we could warm our hands by the fire of his faith. We could warm our hands by the fire of his faith. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? I have never forgotten it since I first read this speech way back in whatever year this was, 1993. And I believe I had heard this story even before that because I feel like I grew up knowing this story. So maybe my parents found it somewhere and shared it. At any rate, listen to that. The teacher murdered the Queen's English every sentence, but we could warm our hands by the fire of his faith. Brother Barrett accorded to that teacher a major influence in what was to happen to him later in life. Isn't that our goal? Don't we want to be able to teach in such a way that others can feel the fire of our faith, that they can be warmed by it and know of our love for God, our love for Jesus Christ, our love for the gospel, and our love for those we teach, so that that can be transmitted in a way that, as we have read here, is not apologetic and not mealy-mouthed or weak or diluted, but straightforward, not whispered in the ear, but boldly testified to with love. Skipping later, then Elder Packer says, individual doctrines of the gospel are not fully explained in one place in the scriptures, not presented or nor presented in order or sequence. Now, I think this is a nice little part that I wanted to include here. Because it's really true. It's not like you can look up in the index parenting and then find all the verses on parenting. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, they're in the topical guide, you can find a lot. But it's not like they're all in one place. There's one over in this book of the Old Testament and one in this book of the Old Testament and one in this part of the New Testament, and one part this part of the DNC or the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price. They're all throughout Scripture and they're not in sequence. They must be assembled, Elder Packer said, from pieces here and there. They are sometimes found in large segments, but mostly they are in small bits scattered through the chapters and verses. You might think that if all the references on baptism, for instance, were assembled in one chapter of each standard work and all references on revelation in another, it would make the learning of the gospel much simpler. I have come to be very, very grateful that scriptures are arranged as they are. Because the scriptures are arranged the way they are, there are endless combinations of truths that will fit the need of every individual in every circumstance. I love that, and I totally believe it. I found that to be true in my own studies of the scriptures, that they are customizable. The Lord can customize to each earnest seeker of truth. As we read the scriptures, we can see what is needful for us, what we are prepared to receive, or what we have had on our mind, or what we are studying, and it can come to us in different ways, in different places, at different times, reading exactly the same words. This is why we don't just read them once, right? Now, Elder Holland's speech, the one that I was looking for, is, as I said, called A Prayer for the Children from 2003. I speak carefully and lovingly to any of the adults of the church, parents or otherwise, who may be given to cynicism or skepticism. 
who in matters of whole-soul devotion always seemed to hang back a little, who at the church's doctrinal campsite always liked to pitch their tents out on the periphery of religious faith. Now think of that image. Here's the church's doctrinal campsite, but instead of coming in close to the fire, they're always kind of on the edges. Now, the reason I was looking for this speech, and I am not done reading from it, but let me pause for a moment to say that what I remembered is not all that explicitly said in this speech, but I feel like it actually is a big part of the message. This is what I remember kind of hearing, hopefully, by the intuitions given to us by the whisperings of the Spirit. But, you know, Elder Holland was the president of BYU prior to his call into the apostleship. And this was not that many years after he had been called. He might have been already there for almost 10 years. But I was thinking when I heard this talk the first time that some of this was probably the result of his experience as a BYU president because there are professors at BYU who violate the principles that Elder Holland was teaching in this speech. So think about that. Now, obviously, parents can do it too. And he does address this to parents. But look, I speak carefully and lovingly to any of the adults of the church, parents or otherwise, who may be given to cynicism or skepticism. Again, I'm going to just read these beautiful words. Who in matters of whole-souled devotion always seem to hang back a little. So what I've warned my own children about and many others over the years is that some places you can go, even the church schools, the BYU campuses that we have in different parts of the country, that we can find teachers who push the edges. In fact, this used to really irritate me. Well, it still does. What, who am I kidding? <laughs> I'm still really irritated by this that there are some people who do have testimonies of the Church of Jesus Christ, but they love to be edgy. And some of them end up on our church campuses. And why? Because you're thinking like, well, why don't they go and teach at some leftist university that is pushing the boundaries in everything? And you know what I think? I think they wouldn't be comfortable there because they are believers, They do believe, they do know the gospel is true. So they don't want to go to one of those places where they would look like a redneck and be seen as an arch conservative. They like to be in the safety of a campus with so many believers on it. And then they can be cool and edgy. And that really fills me with distaste. And I think how awful for them to subject these young kids that come through their classes to that kind of edginess. You've heard the stories, as have I, that there are kids who go to one of these church schools and lose their testimonies because some edgy professor thinks he's being really cool by challenging things or being cynical or showing skepticism, which is exactly what Elder Hollard was warning against. So let me go on. To all such whom we do love and wish were more comfortable camping nearer to us, because we still have to love our neighbor, right? (laughs) I say, please be aware that the full price to be paid for such a stance does not always come due in your lifetime. This is a powerful warning. No, sadly, some elements of this can be a kind of profligate national debt with payments coming out of your children's and grandchildren's pockets in far more expensive ways than you ever intended it to be. 
Now he's going to expand on that in a few moments. Going on, in this church, there is an enormous amount of room and scriptural commandment for studying and learning, for comparing and considering, for discussion and awaiting further revelation. We all learn line upon line, precept upon precept, with the goal being authentic, religious, faith-informing, genuine, Christ-like living. That's quite the sentence there, right? With the goal being authentic, religious, faith-informing, genuine, Christ-like living. That's the goal. Christ-like living that is informed. It's informed by authentic religious faith, and it becomes genuine Christ-like living. Continuing, in this, there is no place for coercion or manipulation, no place for intimidation or hypocrisy. But no child in this church should be left with uncertainty about his or her parents' devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, the restoration of his church, and the reality of living prophets and apostles, who now, as in earlier days, lead that church according to the will of the Lord, the mind of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. In such basic matters of faith, prophets do not apologize for requesting unity, indeed conformity, in the eloquent sense that the prophet Joseph Smith used that latter word. In any case, as Elder Neil Maxwell once said to me in a hallway conversation, there didn't seem to be any problem with conformity the day the Red Sea opened. Boy, that's the truth. Or as we have sometimes said, no atheists in foxholes. But when things are more casually experienced or when we are not in desperate times, people have the luxury, quote unquote luxury, because it's a pretty serious thing to do this, but and not a good thing to do it, but they take the luxury of being edgy, of being on the periphery instead of close to the center. Elder Holland continued, Parents simply cannot flirt with skepticism or cynicism, then be surprised when their children expand that flirtation into full-blown romance. If in matters of faith and belief, children are at risk of being swept downstream by this intellectual current or that cultural rapid, we as their parents must be more certain than ever to hold to anchored, unmistakable moorings clearly recognizable to those of our own household. It won't help anyone if we go over the edge with them, explaining through the roar of the falls all the way down that we really did know the church was true and that the keys of the priesthood really were lodged there, but we just didn't want to stifle anyone's freedom to think otherwise. This is an echo to me of people who have said, well, I don't want to you know, insist that my children go to church, or I want it to be their choice. So, you know, we're just not going to teach them much until they're 18, and then they can decide for themselves. That's ridiculous. They're born in the covenant, if they are born to us while we're members of the church. And why would we not share our most precious gift? But we act like, oh, well, I don't want to impose. It's not imposing to testify. It's not imposing to be a witness of the truth. Isn't it true that once we are warned, we have a desire to love our neighbor and to warn them, or certainly our own children. But that's what motivated Paul. Paul wanted to warn his neighbor because he had been warned. 
and he saw the great blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his own life, it changed his life. So do we not want that for our children? Are we going to hold back? I think some parents, said Elder Holland, may not understand that even when they feel secure in their own minds regarding matters of personal testimony, they can nevertheless make that faith too difficult for their children to detect. We can be reasonably active, meeting going Latter-day Saints, but if we do not live lives of gospel integrity and convey to our children powerful, heartfelt convictions regarding the truthfulness of the restoration and the divine guidance of the church from the first vision to this very hour, that's a big one, brothers and sisters, so much questioning of the prophets right now, right? Then those children may, to our regret but not surprise, turn out not to be visibly active, meeting going Latter-day Saints, or sometimes anything close to it. Not long ago, Sister Holland and I met a fine young man who came in contact with us after he had been roaming around through the occult and sorting through a variety of Eastern religions, all in an attempt to find religious faith. His father, he admitted, believed in nothing whatsoever. But his grandfather, he said, was actually a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Quote, but he didn't do much with it, unquote, the young man said. Quote, again, he was always pretty cynical about the church, end of quote. From a grandfather who is cynical to a son who is agnostic to a grandson who is now looking desperately for what God had already once given his family. That is a terrible tragedy. Jumping ahead, he quotes Richard Evans. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but the end he says, if a parent goes a little off course, the children are likely to exceed the parent's example. To lead a child or anyone else, even inadvertently away from faithfulness, away from loyalty and bedrock belief, simply because we want to be clever or independent, is license no parent nor any other person has ever been given. And again, I really heard in here a warning to BYU professors, wherever they are, or any other kind of teacher in the church. In matters of religion, a skeptical mind is not a higher manifestation of virtue than is a believing heart. An analytical deconstruction in the field of, say, literary fiction, now that is not by chance, because the English department at BYU has long been known for some professors who were exactly like Elder Holland is describing. It's not just the English department anymore, brothers and sisters. I'm afraid it can be in any of the departments at BYU. Probably not the religion department, I hope. It's been a long time since I've taught for them. But look what he's saying. Skeptical mind is not a higher manifestation of virtue than is a believing heart. An analytical deconstruction in the field of, say, literary fiction can be just plain old-fashioned destruction when transferred to families yearning for faith at home. And such a deviation from the true course can be slow and subtle in its impact. As one observer said, if you raise the temperature of my bathwater only one degree every ten minutes, how will I know when to scream? So he ends with these beautiful words, live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. Keep the covenants your children know you have made. Give priesthood blessings and bear your testimony. Don't just assume your children will somehow get the drift of your beliefs on their own. 
The prophet Nephi said near the end of his life that they had written their record of Christ and preserved their convictions regarding his gospel order in order to persuade our children and that our children may know and believe the right way. Nephi-like, might we ask ourselves what our children know from us personally? Do our children know that we love the scriptures? Do they see us reading them and marking them and clinging to them in daily life? Have our children ever unexpectedly opened a closed door and found us on our knees in prayer? Have they heard us not only pray with them, but also pray for them out of nothing more than sheer parental love? Do our children know we believe in fasting as something more than an obligatory first Sunday of the month hardship? Do they know that we have fasted for them and for their future on days about which they knew nothing? Do they know we love being in the temple? not least because it provides a bond to them that neither death nor the legions of hell can break. Do they know we love and sustain local and general leaders, imperfect as they are, for their willingness to accept callings they did not seek in order to preserve a standard of righteousness they did not create? Do those children know that we love God with all our heart and that we long to see his face? and fall at the feet of his only begotten son. I pray that they know this. That's powerful stuff. The whole speech is great, but brothers and sisters, this is what I thought of when I started looking at those words in chapter 8 about not being a stumbling block. Our skepticism and cynicism is magnified in the lives of those that we have stewardship for. Our own children or others that we might teach or come in contact with And we are accountable for those that might perish because of us. Now, let's not go too far. Parental guilt can be a real thing. Mother guilt can be a real thing. And I'm not talking about our abrogating the principles with a great gift of agency that allow everybody to make their choice. We are only responsible for what we do, not for what others do. Or God himself would stand condemned. He has many severely rebellious children, and it is not because of his sins. God is without sin. It is because he absolutely treasures agency, because that is the only thing that gives any choice meaning, any behavior meaning. He will not abrogate agency, nor must we, and that means we have to let go and let God. It is not about holding ourselves accountable for other people's behavior. It is about holding ourselves accountable for our behavior. Can they warm their hands by the fire of our faith? They can, brothers and sisters. They can. I promise this. I know I can promise it because God has promised it, that if we keep our covenants and we remind ourselves of this, hopefully every time we go to the temple, that our children will be blessed because of our covenant keeping. And let's just end with this wonderful thought. Live the gospel as conspicuously as you can. Boy, I love that. We can do it. We need to choose glory, brothers and sisters, and we need to build Zion, that the Savior may come and find us ready. We can do it. As ever, thanks so much to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.